What's going on, people? It's Monday, uh, George Washington's birthday. Happy birthday, George. Um, here we are at Strange Days Live on this Monday, February 19th, 2024. <clears throat> Years going by quickly, right? Like every year goes. Um, well, here we are. Uh, welcome to the show. Today we have some nice stories for you. We, we have like always, weird stories. We're going to talk about odd people. We're going to talk about strange things. And we invite you guys to join us. If you are hearing us in any platform um, other than uh, YouTube Live, YouTube, I should say, um, go ahead and put the link here. Join us at YouTube. That way you can kind of join us and come in and see us. And we can talk to you and ask you questions. Or you can share your stories with us. I posted the direct link into our back end, if you will, of our program. So we're live right now. It's uh, almost 7 o'clock here, Pacific Standard Time. We also have a phone number if you'd like to call. And I'm going to post that as well. That is 951 area code, 888 If you guys want to call that number, I'll put you right on so you guys can be online as well. And I am going to put here the number in our, this is our first live stream in our Instagram. Our Instagram account is pretty, pretty new. So it's been kind of getting uh, good numbers. And I'm putting the number here as well. If you guys want to call uh, with your scary stories or with anything abnormal, paranormal, uh, you can join us. And you know what? I probably can put the link there as well. So I hope you guys had a good long weekend. I'm out personally not ready to go back to work, but, you know, sometimes we have to go back to work, if you will. Um, other than that, it's pretty good. I started, uh, I was working on some, hey, Jennifer, good to have you. I was uh, working on these YouTube shorts today and also posting to the uh, the TikTok channel, the YouTube TikTok channel. What the heck am I saying? The TikTok channel, <laughs> Strange Days Live. So if you're not following our TikTok, go ahead and look for Strange Days Live and look for um, the Instagram, also Strange Days Live. And in YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash at Strange Days Live. And we are on about 50 different podcast uh, platforms. The only caveat is if you want to look for us in the podcast world, we are under Strange Days Paranormal. Okay, we don't have the live moniker. It's not Strange Days Live on the podcast. It's Strange Days Paranormal. Other than that, I created some of those things today. And uh, what's weird about it is within the first two and three minutes, dare to say five minutes, when I put something in TikTok, it goes almost to like a thousand views. And, it, and then all of a sudden, it'll stop. And I still haven't figured out why it stops at a certain number. And if you guys out there are like TikTokers and you know, how to work the magic formula so the videos can keep on getting viewed. Let me know because, you know, I, if I get a thousand views within a few uh, minutes, that's really good. It's just I don't know why it throttles back and then it kind of stops. So if you guys can help me with that, I, I would appreciate it. And let's see here. I'm going to put the StreamYard post also on our, on our uh, Instagram live page. So we are live on two different channels on YouTube. And we are live on our Instagram as well. All right. So some cool news. Uh, on Saturday after the show, I hit up. Um, I've been kind of keeping in touch with Breezy. 
we had a chat on <clears throat> on Friday, sort of speaking my piece and saying what happened. Um, and so on sun, Saturday, uh, after I did the the show, I decided to go 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 and see the guys. I kind of missed the guys a little bit. And um, and so they have their own channel, Breezy and um, and Tim have their own uh, channel. Actually, he's under Tim Zoller, T I M, and then Z A H E. Excuse me, T I M. His last name is Zoller, Z A H L E R, and they go live about like seven thirty ish. And I'm doing my broadcast until eight. So I encourage you guys to go and take a look. At their channel, we were able to sort of rekindle our old friendship and bury the hatchet, if you will. And uh, yeah, so it it was nice. Uh, we were able to kind of, I don't know, just kind of re, you know, kind of rekindle their relationship. I thought it was it was a cool deal. So they're doing their own thing, and they're they're doing really good, and I'm doing my own thing, and we got our friendship back. So I'm happy. Other than that, um, I started getting into the True Detective. If you haven't watched the HBO show, it's a great show. I started watching it uh, two, three years ago. I saw I, I've seen all the, you know, every single season is a different uh, case. So they just came out with uh, season four, and it's a cool, mysterious case. It um, it's pretty par, but pretty paranormal. Um, from the beginning, I watched like the first half an hour. Yeah, I get you, Jennifer. <clears throat> I just had to do it from a personal, um, from our personal. I don't like to hold grudges, and I don't like to, you know, I don't like to have any ill will towards anybody. And I just thought it was time. So, you know, it, it was it was it was kind of good. It was good for me to to speak to the guy. So, um, yeah. So I'm sorry for that. I'm not gonna pry too much into it but uh yeah i'm sorry i'm sad um yeah thank you i appreciate you so yeah so I, <clears throat> i'm listening to uh see i'm watching that uh true detective series pretty good i um i enjoyed it uh i enjoyed all three all three shows pretty good and now i have um i have season four to look forward to other than that uh pretty uneventful just kind of working and hustling, trying to get this channel up to where I wanted to be. But I hope you guys' weekend was fine. Let's see here. Where am I going to go today? We ate. Uh, we ate. I was I just happened to read. Uh, the, I have all these like ready to go articles, and one of the articles I had the word "eat" in it, and so I just made made it into my my vocabulary. <clears throat> Let's see. All right, so I, I guess the first one, it's called The Curse and Deaths. It's a curse and death um, story. This is the haunting history of Lake Lanier. <clears throat> Lake Lanier um, has unfortunately gained a, a sinister reputation for the high drowning rate, unfortunately. There's a lot of mysterious disappearances, boat accidents, and a dark past of racial injustice. Lake Lanier is located actually in Gainesville, Georgia. I've never personally been there, but it looks like a beautiful place. It's a very picturesque, man-made reservoir known for its refreshing waters and warm sun. However, beneath its serene surface lies a dark and mysterious history that has actually earned its reputation for being one of the deadliest lakes in the U.S. 
with an estimated uh, death toll of nearly 700 people since its creation in 1956, <clears throat> Lake Lanier has become a hunting enigma, shrouding a lot, a lot of local legends, as you can figure. You know, if there's a lot of things happening in one spot, it's going to generate all kinds of uh, tales and legends. And uh, there's some paranormal activity also been attributed to that site. <clears throat> so what is this sinister secret that kind of lies beneath the lake being man-made? Uh, what, what was it before that, you know? Sometimes things that are buried could come up in different forms. So the creation and controversy of Lake Lanier. Lake Lanier was constructed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the 50s. It always, uh, it's amazing what the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was able to, to do back in back in the day, you know. Here in California particularly, they were able to bring water into Los Angeles from like, I think like six, seven hundred miles away. Otherwise, Los Angeles wouldn't be what it be what it was what it is today, a huge metropolis, and that's all because they were able to bring water. Um, so I think that's amazing. These do the these people used to do like just amazing feats of how would I say? It? Yeah, just amazing feats, right? Of engineering, <laughs> hence the name. There's a cool movie that um, that came out in '74. It's called Chinatown, and it uh, starts Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. And actually, this uh, movie, it's inspired by the California Water Wars. So it delves a lot into in some of the back history into how Los Angeles got its water reservoir. It's a great movie, Chinatown. It's a 1974 movie. I, uh, if you guys want to watch a good movie tonight or after the show, I might watch it again. I really enjoyed it. Going back to the story, um, so this place was built in 50, sorry guys, in 1951, I believe, plus my train of thought here. Uh, yeah, 1950s by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer. And basically the primary purpose of the lake was just to provide water and power to parts of Georgia and prevent flooding along the Chattahoochee River. So the decision to build this lake near the town of Oscarville in Forsyth County led to the displacement of about 250 families. <clears throat> you know, it is unfortunate that in our society, sometimes we have to do, quote unquote, bad things in order for other good things to occur. You know, similarly in L.A., uh, where they build Dodger Stadium, that they have to displace a whole bunch of families from that area in order to build a stadium. And if you do some research on it, it's called Chavez Ravine. C-H-A-V-E-S, Ravine. Uh, look at the history. There's a lot of YouTube on it. They pretty much got the, the beautiful land on top of a mountain, but there was a, a predominantly Hispanic community in that area, and they were displaced as well. You know, people that had lived there for generations were all displaced because they wanted to build a stadium. So notwithstanding, this is the same sort of thing that happened when they wanted to build Lake Lanier, 250 families. I mean, that's a pretty big town. And uh, it says here that they, they had to dis, uh, led to the destruction of approximately 50,000 acres of farmland and the relocation of 20 cemeteries. So it was a big, big area. Uh, the remnants of Oscarville, including streets, walls, and houses, still lie submerged beneath the lake surface, posting hidden dangers to boaters and swimmers. Yeah, I can imagine if the 
if the waters get low, you know, so you may hit a house with your engine or God knows what, it, what you can get tangled up. Lake Lanier, Serena Pierce believes, uh, belies the dangers that lurk beneath its depths. Over the years, the lake has claimed the lives of a lot of people in a variety of accidents and tragedies, boating accidents, uh, drownings, and unexplained mishaps. In some years, the death toll has actually exceeded 20 lives. It's a lot. The submerged structure of Oscarville, coupled with declining water levels, as I mentioned before, often tends to trap and entangle unsuspecting victims, making escape difficult or impossible. It is estimated that since Lake Lanier construction in the 50s, there have been, like I said before, 700 deaths. Um, you know, the lake is quite large, obviously. It covers an area of around 3,800 acres with approximately 692 miles of a shoreline. So that's huge. This means that there's a lot of opportunities for accidents. Lake uh, Lanier is also one of the most popular recreational lakes in the U.S., attracting millions of visitors. With such a number of people using the lake for boating, swimming, and other water activities, the chances of accidents are obviously going to be higher than you know a lake that is less visited. The lake's depth and underwater topography, as we spoke earlier, uh, poses a lot of risk. There are many submerged trees, rocks, and other objects beneath the surface which pose hazards. The, uh, the depth of the lake can also vary in different areas. The deepest area is about 150 feet, <clears throat> making uh, search and rescue obviously more and more challenging. So the lake's troubled past and tragic accidents have fueled a lot of haunting legends and paranormal tales. Uh, the most well-known is the legend of one of uh, the Lady of the Lake. According to the story, two young girls named Delia Mae Parker Young and Susie Roberts were driving across a bridge over Lake Lanier in 58 when, uh, unfortunately, their car veered off the edge and plunged into the dark waters below. A year later, a decomposed body was found near the bridge, but it remains unidentified for decades. In the 90s, uh, the discovery of a submerged car with the remains of Susie Roberts inside provided closure for the family, confirming indeed that the identity of the body found years earlier. Locals claim to have seen ghostly figures of a woman in a blue dress near that bridge, with some believing uh, that she attempts to lure unsuspecting victim into the, uh, the depth of the lake into their demise. We spoke earlier about racial violence and injustice uh, that occurred in the city of Oscarville prior to it becoming a lake. So, you know, beneath the lake uh, tranquil surface lies the submerged town of Oscarville and um, actually had a thriving black population. But uh, by having this population, it was also marred with social injustice, racial violence. In two, uh, 1912, there was um, a demise of a, of a white girl named May Crow near Oscarville that lent, uh, led to the accusation, wrongful accusation, I must say, uh, of a bunch of people. And it, learned, uh, it, lent to, um, it lended itself to a subsequent lynching of four young black individuals, which is horrible. The violent acts escalated further with uh, multiple white mobs burning down black businesses and churches and driving black residents out of uh, Fort Sith County. The spirit of those affected by the stacked chapter, dark chapter in history, are said to haunt the Lake Lanier up to this day, seeking justice and revenge for injustice they suffered. Well, some uh, believe that some of these, all these bad things that occur in the city that's now buried by the water are connected to the restless spirits of people that have lost their lives. So there's a lot of precautions and restrictions when you go there. Obviously, you know, 
Uh, you have to be, there's popular beaches that uh, you have to be very careful while you swim. And, you know, they, they, they t take precautions as well. So, yeah, that's, um, that's a lake. I haven't, I'm from the west of the U.S., so I haven't really heard too much about Lake Lanier. Maybe some of our listeners have actually been there. And that's, in a nutshell, the history of Lake Lanier. Uh, there's a lot of other things that you could search for if if you are interested. That's why I kind of keep these short, like I always say, because um, I want you guys to, if you're interested about a case, to go and look for it and read more about it. But it looks like a beautiful, I'm looking at pictures right now. It's, it's humongous. And I'm looking at photographs. Um, it looks like a very cool place to go. Let me, man, see here for people. Al Bundy's here. Al, how are you? Good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. It's been a while. Jennifer commented, there's a place here in Lake Mead where an entire town had to be relocated, quote unquote, because they flooded it uh, with the Lake Mead and it's a creepy place that some divers now purposely dive to. Yeah, I was thinking about that, that um, it would be a cool place to go diving when you have uh, underwater structures in towns, you know. That... Uh, of course, if the if the lake lends itself uh, with clarity, I I often go to Fresno, California, which is sort of like your gateway into Yosemite National Park. And there's a cool lake there. It's called Millerton Lake, and uh, that also used to be a town <clears throat> that was uh, flooded in order to create this artificial lake. A cool cool thing about it is that uh, the old courthouse in jail was brought out of before they flooded the town they moved it into an area that was gonna not be under underwater and you can visit it i think it's an 1800s building it's very cool i went there with my son and took some pictures um it's pretty neat it looks you know it looks like an old school courthouse and um at that point in time the the, the levels of the lake were were quite low but uh, given the, the recent rains that we've had in California, it's actually gone up. But yeah, it's a cool, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of cities that are under, that are submerged when they created uh, lakes and, and so on and so forth. Let's see. Thank you, Jennifer, for, yeah, Jennifer, listen to she Please hit the like button, folks. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jennifer. And um, give me just a minute here before we go. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to trying to find uh, my my channel and do something that I should have done a while back. There you go. Should have done this a while back. Um, boom! There we go. I just uh, I added Jennifer. Uh, I give her a little wrench. I give her a little moderator tool. Should have done that a long time ago. Hope you accept it, Jennifer. Your your help and your friendships means a lot. You're always here. Appreciate it. Um, thank you. Uh, let's see. Yeah, restless spirits, right? There's there's a way that these restless spirits uh, kind of have a tendency to avenge themselves. I don't really ascribe to that, but uh, that's what a lot of people believe. I don't think that's what it is. It's probably evil spirits that kind of masquerade as revenge seeker. 
spirits, if you will, and then they give the people that were there uh, a bad name. But, um, yeah, so let's go on to our next weird thing. Lake Lanier, that was fun. All right, so this is called Nahani, Nahani, N-A-H-A-N-N-I, the mysterious valley of the headless man. What is the explanation behind the mysterious presence of decapitated bodies in Nahani Valley, leading to be known as the Valley of the Headless Man? And this is what I like about doing a podcast on, uh, or just focusing on the lesser known paranormal and supernatural things, because I, I never heard of half of the stuff I've never heard of. So it's new to me. The Nahani Valley has seized the imagination of adventurers and explorers and supernatural enthusiasts for decades. Its eerie reputation stems from a series of mysterious deaths and disappearances that have occurred in the area over the years. The most haunting part of it is that many of the victims were found decapitated, giving rise to the chilling moniker of the Valley of the Headless Man. And as you guys, do you guys remember a few years ago, they had a in in Seattle in the Washington area. They had a lot of uh, feet washing uh, washing out on the on the beaches. So th- that would be like the beach of the corpses corpse uh, corpless feet. They had a bunch of like feet in tennis shoes um, showing up ashore. So there would be like skeletonized uh, like you know feet, if you will, inside of tennis shoes. And what I uh, read about that is that they, they said that, unfortunately, a lot of people that deleted themselves from the world, that's a good way to put, you know, the the S word. A lot of people self-delete themselves from the world. And um, when they jump to the demise or they jump into bodies of water, as the body decomposes, the the feet would get... Uh, they become d- detached from the body. And since the tennis shoes tend to be very buoyant, they'll float up to the top and then they'll make their way to the shore of the of the Washington State uh, lake systems. So going back to this one, the Headless Man Valley, uh, the first recorded incident took place in 1908 when two prospectors named Willie and Frank McLeod embarked on an ill-fated journey into the Nahani Valley. The duo disappeared without a trace, but it wasn't until months later that their bodies were discovered. Shockingly, they were both missing their heads. This gruesome discovery set off a chain of events that would make the Nahani Valley a notorious enigma. In the following years, other individuals venture into the valley only to meet grisly, similar grisly fates. <clears throat> Let me see. What, uh, Nahani, I think it's in Canada. Just to make sure where Nahani Valley is. The Nahani National Park Reserve is actually in, yeah, it is in Canada. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's in the Northwest Territories of the Yukon. Man, Canada's humongous. Huh? They have, so yeah, it's, uh, it's way, 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 way up there. It's, um, I don't even, yeah, it's, it's, it's far. So the climate there must be uh, must be hard to to live in that area as well. Okay, so in the following years, other individuals venture into the valley and don't they they met similar fates. Some were found with their heads completely severed, while others simply vanished, leaving no trace behind. 
the Canadian authorities launched investigations, but no conclusive evidence or explanations were ever found, adding to the eerie nature of the Nahami Valley for its rich folklore and indigenous history. The Naha tribe mysteriously vanished from the region a few years before the first recorded death. Yeah, I was thinking maybe indigenous people of the area would, uh, you know, some some people used to scalp. Maybe these people just went all out and they just went, um, they just kind of started beheading people. But if they disappeared, who was committing all these atrocities? Other indigenous people like the Dene, who have called the area home for centuries, have long warned of evil presence in the valley. So they've been victim as well, cautioning against this exploration. The Dene people recount that the Naha, a tribe of fierce warriors, were enemies of them, and they had feared by the they were feared by these ghastly tribesmen. The Naha lived in the high mountains and descended into the lowlands to raid and kill. And the name Nahani of Dene origin comes from the river of the land of the Naha people. Despite their importance in oral history, the Naha mysteriously vanished overnight and no evidence of their existence has ever been found. My goodness. Theory suggests that they may have migrated, succumbed to disease, died out, or still reside in the Nahani River Valley undisclosed location. But if they left no evidence of their existence, then, you know, you figure probably, you know, if you're able to find corpses, why can you find their corpses? In addition to its sinister reputation, the Nahani Valley is also a place of awe-inspiring natural wonder, I bet. It must be beautiful. It's home to sinkholes that plunge into the depth of the earth, geysers that erupt with fury, and the magnificent Virginia Falls, which, in S which are taller than Niagara Falls. This majestic waterfall cascading down the depth of the Nahani River adding to the valley's allure and mystique. Looks amazing. If you guys do some uh, research on it. Despite its fascinating natural wonders, the Nahani Valley remains largely unexplored and shrouded in mystery. Many believe that there are undisclosed entrances to the hollow earth within its uncharted territory. Adding to this theory, a hidden underground world exists beneath the valley surface containing untold secrets and ancient civilizations. Others speculate that the Nahani Valley is a remnant of a lost world frozen in time. Legend speaks of hidden treasures, Asian artifacts, and even the possibility of encountering a known species of flora and fauna within its depth. These theories have attracted numerous adventurer souls determined to unravel the, the secrets that lie within the valley. Canadian government has designated the Nahani Valley as a natural park and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The status serves to protect and preserve its unique natural and cultural heritage. You can uh, ever go there. You can take tours, obviously hike the trails, and you can nav uh, navigate the river as well. So would you take a little vacation to the Valley of the Headless Man? <clears throat> I mean, man, the... Jennifer says, the same headless phenomenon happened in Canada. There are three gold miners were found dead and headless, among other. Wow, it's my, my, might be like a tribal thing up in that area. The natives do not go into the territory. Yeah, I don't blame them. They're supposed to wear wooden masks and be here. Everyone went to, so, wow. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Thanks for sharing that. The strange Chernobyl fungi that eats radiation. That's going to be our next story tonight. In 1991, scientists discovered a fungus named Cryptococcus neoformans at Chernobyl complex that contains large amounts of melanin, a pigment found in the skin which turns it dark. Later, it was discovered that the fungi could actually eat, quote-unquote, radiation 
The Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster in 86 left a scar in Earth history, but amidst the devastation, nature has revealed a remarkable secret. Scientists have discovered a strand of fungi known as Cryptococcus neoformans within the Chernobyl complex that possesses an extraordinary ability to eat radiation. This groundbreaking finding has sparked immense interest and opened up new possibilities for radiation protection, particularly in the context of space travel. Cryptococcus neoformans, a well-known microorganism described in the late 19th century, has proven to be both potential threat and surprisingly an ally to humans. Infection by this fungi, known as cryptococcus, can pose serious risk to individuals with compromised immune system. However, recent studies also shed light on its melanin-rich composition, which holds Kiso's radiation-absorbing properties. That's very cool. Yeah, I remember when the whole... I was watching a show the other day um, <clears throat> in regards to the... to the... Chernobyl disaster. It was pretty... Uh, it was obviously an, an overlook, but I, you know, it's weird that people still want to venture and they want to visit that area. Um very weird you know why would you i mean expose yourself there's people that even come close to the actual site where the where they had the meltdown i mean that's like super highly uh radioactive they had this uh they have the geiger counters the geiger counter basically counts um the units of radiation and, and different types of uh environmental regions whether it be a rock or a piece of ground and i remember in one of these urban explorer videos that the word to chernobyl <clears throat> they had um they actually had a they found a little piece which is probably like the size of <clears throat> probably like the size of half of a of a grain of rice and they, they, they found that it was near um it was like near some grass area and because it's it's uh, it spiked uh the Geiger counter to like millions of um, of units. So all of a sudden they're counting, counting, counting. All of a sudden they go over this little piece of uh, of plutonium and it just spiked. And they said that that was part of the core when it had blown up. Um, this little fragment, like half of the size of a grain of rice, just kind of you know. And uh, it was scary how much radiation the little thing held. You know, have you not had? You can imagine not having your a Geiger counter and all of a sudden you're like walking around this place and you stepped in the mud and that thing travels with you in your shoes. <clears throat> Probably within a few hours, you're, you can have some cellular damage. It's pretty odd stuff. Uh, I, I, not that, that, that adventurous. Let's see here. <clears throat> Let's, should we look, look into... We kind of talked about the disappearances already. already. Just trying to see kidnappings. I'm trying to see what other cool cases we can find. And if you guys want to discuss any particular cases, put it on the comment section and then we'll be able to talk about that. Let's find some cryptids we the crypt cryptids we haven't um, talked about before. We have Chupacabra, we were kind of know. Lois Ape. Okay, the homunculi. 
did the little man of ancient alchemy exist? No, that, that I don't. Well, did Alexander the Great encounter a dragon in India? Let's see about this. Let me man. <clears throat> So melanin, no, melanin is actually is what, yeah, it's what determines our cell, our, our skin color, the ability, the, the cells that produce melanin, they're obviously in African-Americans, they have more. And then people that are whiter, we have less. Jennifer says, funny thing is humans exposed to the levels in that area are rampant with cancer, but many other animals and plants are surviving. Yeah, that's true. A lot of things, yeah. And I, I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. The plants are actually... Uh, survival the thing is that god knows how many generations of grass have grown in that area over the period of like 40 something years you know so they probably it, it's it, maybe they, the grass that's already kind of either built some kind of immunity towards um, radiation that's that's being able to flourish or maybe you know the their cellular composition of plants it's different than humans I know that the cell structure is different, so. But nonetheless, for something to be that radioactive and still be found within like a little splotch of grass is, is pretty remarkable. So this is Alexander the Great. Did he encounter a dragon in India? While invading India in 330 BC, Alexander the Great and his army witnessed a great hissing dragon living in a cave. Alexander the Great was king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedon, also known as Macedonia in the 4th century. He is best remembered for his colossal military campaign, which lasted for most of his reign and led to the creation of one of the largest empires of the ancient world. Undefeated in battle, Alexander's dominion eventually stretched from Greece to northwest India and down to northeastern Africa. In the course of his military campaign through Asia and Africa, Alexander the Great witnessed and indeed engineered many great and terrible things the fall of cities and kingdoms, the slaughter of entire populations, and even, if reports are to believe, a dragon. In 330 BC, after Alexander the Great invaded India, he brought back reports of seeing a great hissing dragon living in a cave, uh, while which people are worshipping, were worshipping as a god. One of Alexander the Great's lieutenants named Onescritius stated that the Indian king Abisaras kept serpents that were between 120 to 210 feet long. Subsequent Greek rulers are said to have brought dragons back alive from Ethiopia. So could this be maybe dinosaurs that were still alive in those times? When Alexander threw some parts of India into a commotion and took possession of others, he encountered among many other animals a serpent. We'd live, which lived in a cavern and was regarded as sacred by the Indians who paid a great and superstitious reverence. And up until now, the Indian community, uh, they pay a lot of respect to serpents, you know, cobras and uh, mice and all kinds of other animal monkeys as well. So according to, accordingly, Indians, uh, people from India went to all lengths, uh, imploring Alexander to permit nobody to attack the serpent. And he assented to their wish. Now, as the army passed by the cavern and uh, they heard this noise, the serpent became immediately aware of it. They became immediately aware of the serpent. It has, you know, the sharpest hearing and the keenest sense of all sights of all animals. I did not know that. It is said that the, be the beast put its head out of the cavern and hissed and snorted so violently 
that all of uh, Alexander men were terrified and confounded. I mean, that probably would take a lot knowing that these guys were conquering half of the world for them to be scared by a serpent. And certainly, according to the description by Elianus, the creature would have been terrifying to behold. The visible part of the serpent alone was reported to measure equivalent uh, 70 cubits. That's roughly the equivalent of 32 meters or 105 feet in length. So, wow. The rest of its immense body remained within the cavern. Uh, Elianus uh, was an old historian that uh, wrote this in between 210 to 230 BC. The world's longest venomous snake, the king cobra, is one such animal who roams the forests of India. Adult snakes can grow to between three to five meters long. So that's 10 to 20 feet. The Well, 10, 10 to 12 feet. This uh, could be a fear-inducing length to anybody. However, not as long as the giant serpent apparently encountered by Alexander the Great. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, in India. This was supposedly in India by Alexander the Great. Let's see here. What are the cool stories? And if you guys, like, again, if you want to come in the show and talk about some mysterious things that you might have heard, you're welcome. Strange, there's a lot of disappearance cases. Kind of not doing that right now. Let's see. The Florida squallies. Do these pig people really live in Florida? Pig people, huh? Let's see what they got to say about the squall. Never heard of squallies, but it sounds like a cool baseball team name. Do these pig people really live in Florida? According to local legend, at the east of Naples, Florida, on the edge of the Everglades, lives a group of people called the Squallies. They are said to be short, human-like creatures with a pig snout. The Golden Gate State, a private community located deep within the Florida Everglades, it is a hidden gem. It was here that the Rosen family, dating back to the 60s, devised a land scheme to profit from. Parts of the property stretch for kilometers without a single house having been built on them. A piece of this land known as Alligator Alley was purchased by the state of Florida for the purpose of restoring it to its original condition. This area is fairly wild and is home to a variety of species, including bears, bobcats, deer, hogs, and panthers, amongst other creatures. Local legend has it that this wonderland is also home to other kind of inhabitants that they refer to as the squallies. Short humanoid creatures with pig-like snouts are the best description for these beings. If you have ever seen the 1980 film The Private Eye, starring Don Knotts and Tim Conway, you will recognize these animals as being similar to the war uh, warglar monsters, but on a smaller size. I've never seen that movie. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I can kind of picture what a, maybe like a porky pig-looking kind of people. Because of their uh, short stature, these squally creatures were frequently referred to as children. It was thought to have been home to a population of 30 or 50 adults at one point. Some believe that a few of them may still inhabit the area, or, per or perhaps other areas of Florida. Uh, how these squallies came into existence is believed to be by some sort of experimental government agency. There you go, blame the government. 
Obviously, things went way wrong as they mutated into pig people. Stories have emerged mentioning that um, on an abandoned laboratory somewhere near DeSoto Boulevard and Oil Whale Road is where these creatures were created. It is here in which these things were born, so to speak. More of the legend mentions in certain places known as the sanctuary, the Nath Lorendum Sanctuary. It is here that anyone who passes by were shot down by a crazed old man. Whether or not he was part of the scientific community or simply a security guard is still unknown. A sense of paranoia took over this location as people were in fear for their lives and others while they lived there. The squallies were believed to capture anybody that came close to them and eat them alive. Since the 60s, a number of strange events are said to occur regarding the squallies, but most of them haven't been recording as evidence. Is it just an urban legend or quite possibly truth? Back in June 14th of 2011, police in Florida recorded a report of a man claiming that he wrecked his motorcycle due to seeing a quote-unquote boogeyman popping out uh, in front of him out of nowhere. Later, another report by the Florida Highway Patrol mentioned the, a man named Mr. James Scarborough, age 49, uh, that actually lived in the Golden Gate State, suffered minor injuries from an incident. He also claimed being pinned down by a pig-looking man after wrecking another motorcycle or his motorcycle. Essentially, these squallies are rampant, <laughs> rampant feral people roaming free. The Florida Squally story is quite similar to a legend of Pigmen of Canuck Case, UK. There are hundreds of these tales of weird, feral people. I'm telling you, this should be an awesome minor league team. I mean, we already have the logo, the Florida Squallies, and you have like a little logo of a, of a little guy with a pig face. I would definitely buy that cap, honestly, and I would, uh, I would wear it all the time because the Squallies look like cool people. Um... Let's see here. According to Rudolf Steiner, writes Al Bundy, the sun and the moon were once uh, were one fear, fear originally. Okay. I don't, I don't know where that came from, but it sounds interesting. Let's see. All right, so this is kind of sad but interesting. Terry Joe Duperolt, the girl who survived the brutal slaughter of her entire family at sea. On the night of November 12, 1961, Terry Joe Duperolt woke up after hearing screams from the ship's deck. She found her mom and brother diseased and the captain um, about to do her in next i have to modulate and change language around from the articles because otherwise i can get a i can go to a youtube jail for saying the wrong word so bear with me in 1961 a photograph was taken of a young girl who was spotted alone in a drift in a small lifeboat in the bahamas one can only imagine how horrible and bizarre and bizarre the story was or how she got there yeah, she looks, wow. Yeah, it looks very sad. On November 8th, 61, ophthalmologist Dr. Arthur Duperol and his entire family embarked on a journey on their Catch Blue, some kind of boat, which took them from Florida to the Bahamas. Yeah, it looks like a, like a nice little vessel, a 60-foot uh, 
twin mast sailing. Uh, they call it a catch, but uh, to me, it just looks like a regular ship. Okay, I'm, I'm not a fancy sail sailor by, by any means. 41-year-old Dr. Drew Peralt set sail from Fort Lauderdale, Florida with his 38-year-old wife, Jean, their 14-year-old son, Brian, and 11-year-old daughter, Terry Jo, and 7-year-old daughter, Renee, all from Green Bay, Wisconsin. The 60-foot vessel, the Bluevale, was captained by a 44-year-old veteran of World War II and the Korean War, War Mr. Julian Harvey, who had been uh, wed five times prior to his journey. I'm not sure how that, but it's important. Uh, but uh, what can we deduce? Well, a um, 45-year-old guy, he had been to two wars, and he had been married five times, so maybe temper wasn't his best attribute. And he had seen some crazy stuff. So, you know, deleting somebody from the world um, perhaps wouldn't be the hardest thing for Mr. Harvey to do. At approximately 9 p.m. on the fateful night of November 12, both Terry Joe and her sister Renee retired to the respecting cabins on the vessel's primary deck for the night. Screaming and stamping came from above at around midnight, waking her up. She heard the sound of her brother Brian yelling, help, daddy, help. She laid in her bunk, paralyzed with fear, but eventually summoned the courage to go out in the main cabin and investigate what the source of the noise was. There, she saw the bodies of her siblings and parents, both lying uh, on the main deck, clearly deleted. When she went on deck, she discovered even more bodily fluids and possibly a weapon. She then saw Harvey, the captain, walking towards her. When she asked what happened, he just slapped her in the face and told her to go down below deck. She returned to her bunk and noticed the smell of oil and water were leaking throughout the floor. Harvey came into the cabin with a rifle, but left the cabin where the water level now reached her bed. So, boat was sinking. As water poured into her cabin, Terry Joe knew she couldn't remain below. She went back up to the deck and terrifiedly asked Harvey again if the boat was, if the boat was sinking, to which the captain replied, yes. For reasons unknown, the captain handed her the rope to the dinghy. Which held the life, which held the deleted life of her sister Renee. <clears throat> In shock, Terry Joe uh, let go of the dinghy. Harvey dove into the water, presumably to recover the small boat, and Terry Joe never saw him again. So, well, Terry, good for Terry Joe. Despite being in great fear and having repeated flashbacks, um, Terry Joe remembered uh, there was a cork float on the ship. She untied it and climbed aboard as the bluebell sank beneath her. The cork raft was just two feet by five feet in size, and she could only sit um, on the tubes around the edge because it was, that was the only dry spot. She was dressed in a white blouse and pink corduroy slacks, wore no shoes, and had uh, no head protection. Oh. She spent the next three nights drifting in the sea with a broken heart. Poor little girl. On November 16th, a sailor of a Greek freighter Captain Theo noticed a tiny speck on the water in the distance. When the ship pulled up to it, the sailors realized it was afloat. And then, to their shock, they discovered that it was supporting nearly lifeless body of the survivor, Terry Joe Duperault. Her appearance was so startling that one of the sailors snapped a photo, and the image made its publication around the world. 
The freighter crew quickly lowered a makeshift raft to rescue the poor little girl. However, before they could uh, get to her, sharks began circling and perhaps drawn to the movement. And right on time, the crew were able to hoist Terry Joe on board. Unbeknownst to Terry Joe, by the time that she woke up on November 12th, Harvey had already drowned, obviously, um, and was never found. Harvey likely deleted his wife or the crew to collect a $20,000 double indemnity, indemnity policy. And then when, so, okay, so the captain, Harvey, took his wife on the trip and he tried to delete her so he would collect the $20,000. But when he was doing that, Terry Joe's dad witnessed him. And that's when the things went south. So that's when he deleted the doctor and then he deleted the rest of the family. And thank God that Terry Joe was able to jump in this little thing. Harvey then sunk the yacht. They were on and escaped to his dinghy, but uh, with his wife's drowned corpse as evidence. His dinghy was actually found by the freighter, the Gulf Lion, and brought to a U.S. Coast Guard site. Harvey told the Coast Guard that the yacht had broken down while he was on the dinghy. There is another twist in the story, uncovering some more dark secrets of Harvey's past. It was later found that the Harvey survived an accident which uh, deleted one of his previous wives and her mother 12 years prior. When the car they were in went off a wooden bridge into 15 feet of water, the police and the diver who investigated the case believed it was unlikely Harvey could have escaped uninjured without being ready to leave the car at the right moment. Goodness. Earlier, his yacht Torbatross and powerboat Valiant had also sank under suspicious circumstances, resulting in a large insurance settlement. Also, oh, this guy already had his thing planned out. During an inquiry by the U.S. State Coast Guard, Harvey said that the blue veil was struck by a squall that shattered the mast, punctured the ship's hull, ruptured the auxiliary gas tank, and ignited a fire. He also stated that he discovered Renee adrift in the water and attempted to revive her, but was unsuccessful. Renee was his wife that he was going to collect the, the money on. He was informed by the Coast Guard after receiving word of Terry Joe's rescue. Yay! The next day that he had, uh, he was booked into a motel under a false name, and um, he actually cut himself on the thigh and the ankle to show some kind of injury. But then upon hearing about that the little girl was rescued, he deleted himself for fear of being found. To this day, um, why Harvey decided to let the young Terry Joe Dupereau live is unknown because there was so little else to explain why he would have no hesitation in deleting the rest of her family, but, but strangely enough would let Terry Joe Dupart stay alive. Others have speculated that he was motivated by a latent desire to avoid being apprehended by the authorities at the time, but no matter how you slice this case, the bizarre act of mercy made national headlines. And um, it was, this is a cool sort of trivia question. Uh, it was because of Terry Joe's ordeal, as well as the difficulty she had in finding her life raft, that the Coast Guard decided to change the color of life rafts from white to bright orange in 1962. As an adult, Terry Joe applied for a post in fisheries at the Department of Natural Resources, and then she worked in the water resource and water regulation and zoning. After the catastrophe, she went public. Uh, 
Terry Joe stated in an interview with CBS, she forged a wonderful affinity with water dry, uh, rather than a traumatic one. Well, what a wonderful story. Never heard of it before. Let's see what's going on in our world of comments. Yeah, I guess people like it. I liked it. I thought it was a cool story. For the people joining in the live video feed on Instagram, welcome. I see that uh, Mr. Bernicle and Aaron joined. So welcome to our live broadcast. Let's see here. So that was Terry Joe Duparat. How weird, huh? How things just kind of happen and then positive things come out of it. You know, I like that. Let's talk about the immortal jellyfish that can revert back to its youth indefinitely. Would you like to be a, a jellyfish that lives uh, indefinitely? The immortal jellyfish is found in oceans all over the world and is a fascinating example of the many mysteries that still exist beneath the waves. It's funny, today for some reason it's all about water. I should be here. We talked about water the whole day. Uh, have you ever heard of an animal that can cheat death and live indefinitely? It sounds like something out of a science fiction novel. But the immortal jellyfish, also known as Turritopsis dorini, is a real-life creature that possesses this remarkable ability. So what makes it possess? The extraordinary powers of immortality, you ask? Well, like all jellyfish, the immortal jellyfish begins its life as a tiny larva called a planula. The planula swims in the ocean until it finds a suitable surface to attach itself to and grow into a colony of polyps. These polyps eventually give rise to genetically identical medusae, which are the free-swimming jellyfish we're all familiar with. It is during this stage that the immortal jellyfish displays its incredible ability to define aging and death. When an immortal jellyfish faces physical damage or starvation, it has the ability to revert back to its earlier developmental stage. So let's say <clears throat> you're 50 something years old, they tell you you have cancer and all of a sudden you have the ability to kind of go back in time, become a 40 year old. And you can do that over and over and over again. So these little guys are able to transform themselves back into polyps once again. This process known as trans, trans differentiation allow the jellyfish to rejuvenate and start its life cycle anew. It is as if the jellyfish hits a reset button, defying the natural course of life and death. I wonder when a jellyfish makes this decision, I wonder if um, once they kind of revert back to infancy, if all their thoughts are and experiences are lost, you know? Because if they just become the same creature, but their their minds and their memories get erased, then it's not really immortality, is it? Transdifferentiation is a rare and fascinating cellular mechanism that plays a crucial role in the immortal jellyfish's ability to reverse its life cycle. Though this process, an adult cell can transform into a completely different type of specialized cell. So this is kind of like stem cells, right? Stem cells are cells that haven't been programmed with a job or a function yet. So if you guys you guys have heard of stem cells, so the, these stem cells you can inject anywhere. And once they get programmed into becoming something, then that's what they always will be. So let's say 
you have a stem cell and you put it into bone, then it will become a bone cell. You have a stem cell, you put it in an eye, it'll become an eye cell. But once they become an eye cell, they can never be a stem cell again. It's just a, basically a stem cell. It's a, it's a cell with a clean slate that hasn't been programmed uh, in order to become anything. But once it's programmed, then it ceases to become a stem. Therefore, it can revert its uh, cells back to the earliest form known as a stem cell. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, this, yeah, okay. I, I don't pre-read these guys. Uh, these stem cells that differentiate and form all the necessary cells to rebuild the jellyfish. Okay, I gotcha. So that they basically go back to stem cells. That's pretty cool. Imagine, imagine the power uh, we were to kind of find um, some kind of how they do it, and we were able to replicate in the field of medicine. It would be amazing. So, are the immortal jellyfish an invasive species? Um, given their ability to cheat death, uh, it also raises concerns as an invasive species. These tiny, transparent creatures have proven to be excellent hitchhikers spreading across the world's oceans through the ballast uh, ballast water of ships. Their unconspicuous nature and adaptability make them difficult to detect and control, posing threats to, uh, to marine ecosystems. But I'm sure they've been around for thousands of years. So, Originating from the Mediterranean Sea, the immortal jellyfish have now made its way into the oceans worldwide. It is believed that human activities such as shipping have played a significant role in distribution. Huh. Very cool. Never heard of those things either. Let's see what people are talking about here. Yeah, you guys are talking about faith. You guys are talking about that. that pretty cool stuff, huh? Um, so we talked about the squalies again. If you guys ever buy a minor league team, call it the Florida Squalies. I think that would be an awesome name for a team. And it's almost this will be a last article or uh, the last article for today as we go into our hour. This is called the Nebraska Miracle: The Incredible Story of the West End Baptist Church Explosion. When the West End Baptist Church of Nebraska exploded in 1950, no one was injured because every single member of the church, of the choir that was there practicing, was coincidentally late in arriving for practice that evening. That's amazing. In the small town of Beatrice, Nebraska, on March 1st, 1950, a tragedy was narrowly averted at the West End Baptist Church. A gas leak caused an explosion that completely destroyed the church building. What makes this event truly remarkable is that every single member of the church choir who would have been inside the church at that time miraculously escaped harm. They were all coincidentally late for choir practice that evening, sparing them from a potentially devastating fate. The incident, now known as the Nebraska Miracle, has enthralled people's imagination and sparked discussions about fate, divine intervention, and the power of coincidence. Let's see here. The Western Baptist Church, located in Beatrice, Nebraska, was a close-knit community of worshipers. The church was led by Reverend Walter Klem uh, Klempel, a respected pastor who was deeply committed to his congregation. One of the highlights of the church's activities was his choir, which was directed by Martha Paul. Martha was known for her strict adherence to punctuality and demanded that every choir member be present for practice at no later than 7.25 p.m. every Wednesday evening. The choir consisted of 15 dedicated members who shared a passion for music and for worship. On the evening of March 1st, 1950, tragedy struck the West End. 
unbeknownst to anybody, a gas leak had occurred in the church, filling it with flammable gas. Reverend Klempel, um, as was his routine, had arrived at the church earlier that day to light the furnace and ensure the building will be warm for the evening's practice. But little did he know that this seemingly innocent act would set the stage for a remarkable series of events. So each of the 15 members had a unique reason for being late to practice that evening. Uh, the seeming trivial delays will prove to be their salvation. Let's delve into the stories of these individuals and the circumstances that kept them away from the church at that particular critical moment. Marilyn Paul, this was the church choir director, the daughter of the choir director, oh, excuse me, this is Marilyn Paul. She was the daughter of Martha Paul, who was the, the choir director. She was the pianist for the choir. On the fateful day, she decided to take a short nap after dinner before heading to practice. However, she overslept and was, was awoken by her mother just 10 minutes before practice was, was scheduled to begin. This delay ensured both that Marilyn would not be inside the church when the explosion occurred. Mr. Herbert Kiff was a choir member and uh, an operator. He had an important letter to mail to the, the denominational headquarters. Despite being aware that he was already running late for practice, he decided to prioritize finishing the letter before heading to the church. Little did he know that this seemingly in, innocuous decision would spare him from impending disaster. And if you're a believer, I think that a lot of, when we get to, to heaven, we'll be able to see a lot of things that have avoided us from, from for, you know, or has spared us from atrocities. Things that, you know, we overlook now, but once we get to see the big picture, we'll be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe. And sometimes those things are maybe uncomfortable, you know. Maybe, you know, you got sick, or maybe your car crash, or maybe something happened and you see it as something negative, but you never know if that solemn act will be uh, a life-sparing act. So, in other words, don't worry too much about things. Lucille Jones uh, was an 18-year-old singer in the choir and um, had a penchant for radio shows as well. On that evening, a popular program called This Is Your Life, featuring Ed Ber uh, Edgar Bergen, was airing. Lucille turned on the radio at 7 p.m. and intended to leave before it ended to make it to practice on time. However, captivated by the program content, she decided to stay until the end. Uh, disregarding her usual promptness, and she had no idea that this deviation from her routine would play a pivotal role for her survival. Mrs. LaDonna Vandergrift, 15-year-old LaDonna, a soprano in the choir, was diligently working on a difficult, difficult geometric problem for her homework. Determined to find a solution before leaving for practice, LaDonna lost track of time and found herself running late. She was completely unaware that her academic pursuits would inadvertently keep her away from the church. Royera and Sadie Estes had car trouble. Both sisters' choir members encountered unexpected car troubles on the way to the practice. Their car simply refused to start. Ruth Schusters had a missionary meeting. Joyce Black was reluctant to leave. She's a stenographer who lived across the street from the church. She found herself hesitant to leave her warm house and faced a cold evening. She kept putting off her departure, delaying her arrival at practice. And unbeknownst to her, her reluctance to leave the comfort of her home will be a, forter, a fortress decision, sparing her from the explosion. The miraculous escape. A precise 7.27 p.m. tragedy struck. The gas leak ignited, causing a massive explosion that completely destroyed the building. 
The force of the blast shattered nearby windows, disrupted the town's radio station, and sent shockwaves to Beatrice, Nebraska. However, amidst the chaos, a remarkable fact emerged. And as we all know, every single choir member survived. The church was eventually rebuilt. And until this day, the miracle of the West End Baptist Church continues to baffle people. Awesome. We're right on time, right on the dot, an hour. So, yeah. All right, guys. Well, um, God bless you, everyone. Thank you for listening to, yeah, thank you for listening to the show. I'll be back here tomorrow. Please like and subscribe and follow us on all the other podcast applications. If you indulge in TikTok, you can find us at Strange Days Live and TikTok. Please subscribe there. If you have Instagram, same thing, Strange Days Live uh, at Instagram. Uh, and then obviously our channel here. And there's a sister channel that has all the old Arbel archives. And you can find that if you type, if you go to YouTube and you type the at sign, you put at Art Bell Files, you'll go to that channel that uh, also has a lot of Arbel directed stuff. Other than that, thank you guys. God bless you and have a great, wonderful night. And God be willing, I'll see you guys here tomorrow.